So not, one evening I was playing ping pong with the prioress, Debbie and I did what we were doing. And so I was playing with her and I said, uh, are there any old backward conservative caramels still left in the United States? And she says, there's a few. And so I said, could I have your addresses, please? <laughs> Sister Anne, thanks for coming on the Talking Catholic. How you doing? Oh, David, you're my greatest hero on YouTube. I'm, this is such a privilege and an honor. I'm so glad you invited me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. I've been watching you for a long time. And I don't think a lot of your videos, I never really saw your face. I always just heard your voice. But um, then I started seeing your face in some of your videos. And it's so glad to have you on here to see you in person and talk with you. I did the audience for a long time because it really wasn't about me. I was trying to just, you know, give Mary's apparitions. But then when I started giving my opinions on church doctrine, I thought I got to find a way to get my face up there. So <laughs> I think the reason I found you, I'm trying to remember because it's been so long I've been following you. I think it was when Ted and Marshall released his infiltration book mm -hmm. and that you were coming up on my suggested list because you had the book out on Freemasonry. And so I said, who is this black Catholic? I got to know this guy. And so I was just so blown away. Um, it wasn't Freemasonry. I mean, I, I bought your book on Freemasonry because it's a great resource. But the one that blew me away was your apostolate with the mass and talking to black Catholics about, you know, the importance of the mass because they have a different understanding, the gospel, you know, that the whole, you go into it very well. But, you know, when I was, um, when I was a young Carmelite, I, you know, I was very distressed that all the girls were white. I mean, it's like, what's wrong with, isn't, doesn't God call the other races? Where are, where are the rest of the kids? And I thought, why are they not, why are they not hearing a vocation? Because I was sure they should be. As far as I know, there was only one or two black Carmelite sisters at that time. Um, and so I used to pray every day for black vocations because I said, I want a black sister. I mean, where are my black sisters? They're, they're, they should have the joy of this fantastic vocation. And I don't think the Catholic families that are in the black communities realize are promoting the cloistered vocation among their daughters and their sons. Um, so I was praying for black Catholics all, all my life. And I, was, I never got one. I thought, God, I thought you hear prayers. Where are your prayers? And then um, in Melanie's vision, when she, when she heard the rule, Mary was dictating the rule, she was seeing little clusters of people in the habit of this new order that they would, that they would be ministering in different ways. And she told people later, it was so strange. The people were different, all different colors. I don't understand that because she, she was a little bully on France. So she like French girls. She didn't have any different colors. I thought, yeah, I'm going to get some black sisters at last. So, um, so um, I just, I'm just so excited about your apostolate to reach out to the black community because I have the fullness of the Catholic faith too. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm sure, and, and I was in France just one briefly and, you know, almost every church, they had a black pastor because there's no vocations in France. They're not having children. So it's the Africans who are, who are, who are staffing France right now. Yeah, and so, yeah. I see that the African church is very vital, very vital, and uh, it doesn't do it so well in America because in France, you know, it's the French Congo, the French African, so they speak a language in an accent that the French can understand, but when they learn English, it's very hard to understand African bishops in the United States, and so and there's a culture difference. They probably don't even relate that well to black Catholics because it's, it's such a culture shock, you know, but we've got to have... We've got 
we've got to have the joy of the, of the Catholic faith for all our, our Catholic brothers and sisters, our, our black brothers and sisters. So I love what you're doing. And I just, and I hope you send me lots of black vocations. Do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be one of your, your, your biggest fans. You know, my, 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 um, my, my calling has just been kind of like Dorothy, Dorothy O'Neill Wiermars. Yeah, I just, yeah. I, I just, just gave me a mission just to share um, about the mass, what it is, and um, just to share the good news of the liturgy and the mass. So I love talking about other things, but that's definitely my passion. I think that if more Black Americans just know what the mass is, that is that is. Is is divinizing you, and Jesus Christ is truly there. I think that's just the best news that anyone can hear. I know. <laughs> and you are so articulate, and just you know, so convincing. I mean, you know what you're talking about, and you're and you're talking about from your conviction, your own experience, your prayer life. So you are a very authentic witness, and so I am very. I just love listening to you myself. And where can people find you on YouTube? Um, YouTube is Marian News. It's all one word. Um, Marian News YouTube channel. And uh, we've got, now we've got a big website now. It's uh, finally got that together. It's houseofmaryomd.org. Houseofmaryomd.org. That's a lot of information there. We're going we're gonna to get into some of that. So happy to introduce you to our audience. But um, so bring us up to, oh, man, there's so much to talk about. But, okay, let's just start in the beginning. Tell us about your, your, your favorite journey, Your what makes you Catholic, stay Catholic, and bring up to the point in time where you sort of um, hear the call to um, religious life. Well, um, I, where do you start? Okay, um, I always talk too much, so we have to cool this down a little bit. Okay, so I was born and raised a cradle Catholic. Um, by the time I was in second grade, Vatican II was pretty much in full swing. So I only experienced uh, a and a habit in, in second grade and a catechism. So but after that, I stayed in Catholic schools and, and through some college. So I lived through the whole Vatican II thing. And, um, but it was done very well in Wichita, our diocese. There's a lot of good Midwest Catholics here, families, farm families that just build up Kansas. And it's very stable here. And Bishop Mahoney, God rest his soul, he didn't allow a lot of crazy experimentation. So um, it was, um, there, I mean, we, we went through stuff, but um, it wasn't crazy. So it, um, it was good. But I, I happened to be in a, and almost like there's, in Wichita, there's like 20-some parishes, and almost everyone has a big Catholic school with it. So it's just it's just Catholic town over here. Um, so, uh, but I was in a um, lively Catholic parish at that time, and every year they, they said, oh, we don't like this new series of, of uh, post-Vatican II religious books, so let's try another brand. And so it was crazy because every year they threw out the grades one through eight, and it just happened that my class would get, every year they get a new program for books, and one of those years would be dedicated to the Old Testament. And it so happened my class got the Old Testament every year through grade school by different companies. So except for seventh grade, I think that was the only thing. So I really didn't know a whole lot about Jesus other than what I picked up in, in a first communion class. And so I was a really dedicated Jew by the time I was like in, in um, eighth grade. I just love Yahweh. I mean, he was he was the best. And for me, 
the mass was the Old Testament. It was, you know, Abraham slaying his son on the altar. I just thought that was the most beautiful thing. Only God, you know, God let it go. And Jesus was kind of a shadowy figure, like, who's this guy who doesn't really obey the laws? I'm just going worried about him. You know, he was, he was kind of a rebel. I wasn't sure about him. So, um, but I was... But um, we grew up with big families in those years. Um, I'm 60 now, so back then everybody had six kids at least, and uh, so we had, we would have seven. The seventh was born after I entered the entered the convent, so I got to live with my last sibling. Oh, wow. So um, uh, where can I where go? Are you real at? Fast? Are you where are you at in your in your, your your rank of siblings? Are you the oldest? Or? I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest. So I'm the boss. I'm still the boss. <laughs> That was such a gift, an anchor for me, and uh, we had we had prayer life. We didn't. Um, we had people leading the rosary after school, and there were pamphlets everywhere about your vocation and and Legion of Mary and stuff like that. So the church was well stocked. Our library was well stocked. So I understood from very young age that I would have to make a decision, either you know, for marriage or or for religious life, or just I wanted to know what God wanted. And uh, when I was about, I guess I was about eight, somebody gave me a little Lives of Saints, of the girl saints. And, you know, I, I was flipping through, and then, oh, Saint Anne was so far above all the rest. She just, nobody can come close to Saint Anne. I mean, she raised, she raised the best child in the world. I mean, that, that took someone who was really close to God, because I just admired somebody who could pray that much and listen to God. Like, how do you raise a child to more vocation that well? So for me... St. Anne was the model of listening to the Lord, and it wasn't a matter of, you know, religious or, 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 or being a grandmother or anything. It was just listening to the Lord, that, that prayer life I wanted. So um, I just thank God looking back because I really had a hunger to listen to the Lord and to know Him. And so I just spent, oh, I, I mean, I had a hard time getting from Friday to Sunday Mass, so I would ride my bike to a church a lot on Saturdays to great school and uh yeah. i would spend time after school making the stations across and spending time hanging out in the church and uh, it was hard to pray at home because we had a busy house and with six kids you really got your own own room and it was noisy and you needed the church and i just can't imagine how kids can foster vocation now because i mean to any vocation they have to listen to god and if you can't find a quiet place or get to church i mean now in those days, the kids could, could be, be on their bike all day long, and the parents weren't worried. But now they're, like, on a tether. And so, and churches are locked, you know, because of vandalism. So I really don't know how to advise parents to find their way to let children, you know, mature in spirit. Because children are close to God, and they're listening, and they're praying. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Um, in this milieu, you know, if I would have had a way to, to connect with, with God that well. And uh, I would say for my vocation, though, I was always just, I, I, was, I was exposed to active sisters. I knew about teaching sisters and nursing sisters and missionary sisters. And I, and I was surrounded by others and, I, and my siblings. I love them so much. Taking care of babies was the funnest thing. So I was open to everything, to marriage or anything. But... Um, uh, it was really when, in religion class, in about 8th grade, I was 12 or 13, that um, this old Polish priest who came over here after World War II, 
he he was sent to babysit our religion class because I don't know where the teacher was that day. And so he didn't know what the curriculum was or anything. And so he just had to figure out what to do with us for an hour. So he decided to tell us about St. Therese of Lisieux, also called a little flower. And it's funny that, that I never really investigated her. Really, she never made that much impression on me because her statues are everywhere. So I should have seen her or known her. But when he started telling me about her vocation to just pray and sacrifice for people, um, that was such a new idea. The whole, the whole idea of living just for prayer and sacrifice, not engaging in active service, but um, to bring about the conversion of people. Because I think by that time, I had seen people in my father's business who they had their mistresses, they were not living good lives, and yet they saw the good example of my family and, and other families, and I knew they were, they had, they had been exposed to religion and stuff like that, and homilies once in a while, but you know, when you're attached to a mortal sin, when you're living in sin, they, they can't make that change unless someone is praying and sacrificing for them. And it seemed to me that that I could go off and be a missionary and talk all day long, or but but to be to get to break that bond with sin was so exciting. And it seemed to me that was the core thing that was so such a challenge. And I wanted to do that like St. Therese. So I could wait for I could hardly wait for him to stop talking. So I could run to the run to the school library and check out her life. And uh, I was just t completely taken with the Carmelite vocation. But then I got to thinking about it. Yeah, she entered Carmel when she was 15, but I'll never get past my folks. I'll have to finish high school. And so, so during Catholic high school, I got smarter. I began to realize, you know, her prayers would change a sinner. But I'm a sinner. So what good are my prayers going to be? So I'm thinking, you know, my prayers might not be that fruitful. So maybe it'd be better if I was a missionary or an active sister or something else. So, or maybe I could... And I had a lot of interest in politics, so um, I had a lot of opportunities to get into international politics. And uh, so I thought, you know, I could change the world by joining the United Nations or this or that. So I was being pulled in all sorts of temptations. Um, but, but to make a long story short, I finally figured out with, with some help and advice and prayer that, you know, a vocation, God doesn't call you because you're worthy or good. He calls you because he's going to give you the grace to do a job that he's given to you, and you just got to trust him. And uh, I can't call myself to some other vocation, and I can't call myself to marry the best guy in the world, or or some or follow Mother Teresa of Calcutta or something else. I've got to go with what he's given me to do. And whether I say one soul or twenty million, that's pretty much up to his grace and whether I cooperate. And so, um, so I, I, at, um, by the end of my junior year, I stopped dating, stopped fooling around, and uh, started writing some caramels. And uh, to my disappointment, they said they wanted me to have some college. I thought, oh, bummer, I just want to enter right after high school. So, um, so I was in college, and uh, I did one semester, and so I wrote, is this good enough? Can, is, can, I, can I come now? <laughs> and uh, they said, well, do a come and see. And so this was in... Oh, when was it? 1977? Yeah, probably 70, no, 78. So it was Christmas of 78. And so um, I got on my first plane. I don't think I've ever flown anywhere. And so I flew out of state because there's no caramels in Kansas at that time. Oh. And 
And I was kind of glad because I knew if my family was too close, they'd be down my throat and visiting me all the time. And I knew you know, they need to get on their own. They don't need their big sister running their lives. That's my, that was my role for some time. Yeah. So um, I flew up there and uh, I was kind of confused because they were going to let me enter the cloister and stay there for, with, I think, five days. And that, that wasn't the traditional thing. You don't enter the cloister until you're ready to enter the cloister and then you never leave it. But okay, whatever. It's a modern world, post Vatican II, right? So, um, so and, I, and the brochures were all beautiful. They were in the habit. It was all very monastic. Everything looked good. And, and I didn't ask any, I didn't ask any intelligent, doubtful questions. I just trusted that they were just like St. Teresa's time, you know? And so, uh, so we flew in at the airport and I expected to, you know, get a cab and, and, and go to the monastery. And as I looked down from the tarmac, there were five nuns waving and grinning at me. And they were wearing jeans and sweatshirts, and only one of them was in kind of a habit. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, can I just stay on this plane and not and go back home? I made a big mistake here. But I had my round-trip tickets, so I had to go with it. Yeah. So um, uh, it was a wild five days. It was very, very disappointing, very, very shocking to me. I was very young. I was just, I was 18. And yeah. so uh, I just never imagined. I thought, of course, Vatican II, of course, there's wonderful reasons for a lot of the changes for the active religious. Um, they had to drive. They can't be wearing their wimple, you know, the way it is. And they've got to do things. But the cloister, I didn't think it would be so much touched by all that. And so, uh, so there were some other girls doing the living with me because we did it over Christmas break. And uh, so... Um, so, I mean, my cell was, oh, it was just so, I mean, it was so posh. It was, it was unbelievable. I could see kind of remnants of what it used to be. And the factory, I could see the remnants of the, of the tables on, on other, other benches on the sides. But now we had this huge dining room table plopped in the middle of it. And there was no silence at meals. It, I could go on and on, all the craziness. And so, so at not, one evening I was playing ping pong with the prioress, to give you an idea of what we were doing. And so I was playing with her and I said, uh, are there any old backward conservative caramels still left in the United States? Oh, she says, there's a few. And so I said, can I have your addresses, please? <laughs> so, uh, so that kind of opened my eyes to a lot. And so, uh, so I went home and I started writing those caramels. I didn't enroll in, uh, in college because I just thought I, I want to go now. And so I just figured all my correspondence, everything I did with that caramel could apply because there were 65 caramels in the United States. So there's a, there's a lot of cloistered caramels in the United States. You don't know about them because they don't really engage in the parishes. They're just hidden out of the way places. Many of them are rural areas. So, um, so I started writing to them. And uh, finally, one was, finally I was coming to them, but... As I was praying and getting it, I thought, you know, those, those that prioress, she was in contact with good Carmelite friars, and they were as crazy and far out as she was, and and so her confessors were not giving those sisters any good advice, and so what happens when I have a a, a superior who's giving me bad advice? How do I protect my vocation and do what I've got to do? I can't just go and say. I'll, I'll just be obedient to superiors. I also have a conscience. I mean, it's kind of like joining the army. Just because your captain tells you to shoot, you, ha you have to pull that trigger. So there's also a co-responsibility for anything we do in life. And I thought, I need some more education. So I enrolled in a, um, in a 
those days they didn't have all these nice Catholic colleges that they have now that, you know, um, like Steubenville and Christendom and, and out west was the name of that, Thomas Aquinas, those ones, those weren't there in the 70s. And so, um, so I went to a Jesuit college, which was the dumbest thing possible to do at the end of the 1970s. But really, um, parents were oblivious, priests were oblivious, what was going on in those walls at that time. And so for, for my, so I spent a year in a Jesuit college, college majoring in heresy. I learned, I learned theology from the back, back door. Um, it was, it was just a horrible experience, but I realized, realized how badly we need to pray for the church. And so it grounded me all the more in my vocation to pray for conversion of, of the whole church, every level. And so I finally entered a Carmel, um, and it was happily ever after. I was so happy in my vacation. It was just, it was just beyond anything I could have expected. Um, like so you live in this life now. You, so you live in this life of of sacrifice and prayer and fasting. But how do you know who to pray for being cloistered? I mean, because you're not watching TV or all that stuff, right? I mean, how how do you how do you know specifically who to pray for? Well, as a religious, um, you know, the priest has his sacrifice of the mass. That's his main thing. But he's also obliged to the divine office. But the divine office really came from monks and religious. The, the priest eventually, you know, appended that, added it on. So the, the divine office, the praises of the church, sometimes uh, okay. that is our essence of being. So you're living, you are the voice of the church, and when uh, you're consecrated, uh, you are the official prayer of the church. So you are supplicating for the whole world in union with Christ the high priest and all the saints and angels, and so the divine office is our prayer. And then, of course, our personal union with Christ. We had in Carmel, we had an hour of silent prayer in the morning, an hour of silent prayer in the evening. And then you had your um, spiritual reading times and all sorts of that kind of stuff. So, so I, I never thought about who, I never thought in the morning, like, who am I praying for? Um, that's up to God where to apply those, those, those graces. And yeah. I never had any doubt that he would know where to apply them. So I figured, you know, I'll find out in heaven who I helped. And and I also knew that a grace offered um, is not always a grace received. So I can imagine how hard Our Lady and Our Lord, you know, tried to convince Judas to accept the graces that were coming to him. And he received many, but in the end he trashed them all. And uh, all that was wasted, mm -hmm. all that prayers for him were wasted, and I knew that my prayers might be wasted, but it was worth trying, you know? So you just throw out your your, your hook, and you just, if you get to catch, that's great. If you don't, yeah, that's right. beautiful. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm completely ignorant of what goes on in, in, in the cloister. I know we have one here in, in Belleville. Um, never, never, never that's visited. That's the prayers. Oh, yes, they're a wonderful community. I had yeah. a lot to do with them. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So, yeah. also the divine office. That's, that's a beautiful, that's so beautiful. But sometimes people do mail in requests, right? Yes. And the phone. So, usually what happens on TV, the fast people immediately pick up their phone and call the nuns. So, like, we heard 9-11 almost instantly. We heard, you know, some of the big news will come by the telephone immediately. People will call in requests. And so, um, so if there's anything big 
we just get it indirectly through people pray, asking for prayers for things. Um, but I will say that disappointed me. I, I answered the door for nine years, um, I guess because I was kind of the social by nature and the prior knew that. So I just I enjoyed that. I was in nature. My, my dad had restaurants. We had nine Sonics. And so uh, so I was I was in the, we were in the restaurant business. I loved dealing with people all the time. So it kind of came natural in the cloister to to um, answer the phone and, and the door. But I was sometimes disappointed because when people came to the door so often, their prayers were so narrow, their prayer requests. It was like like somebody's surgery or somebody's, you know, somebody's going through. A, a, some, it was always for the family, once in a great while for the parish, and but for the world, for for politics, for the state, for for. I think Catholics now are more more attuned. We got to pray for our country. I think it's a. I think it's clearer now. But back then, I was kind of disappointed that they were so so focused on their own life. They were just oblivious to to the greater problems going on in the church and the world. But I think that is changing a lot now. I think the internet helps that a lot too. Yeah. I like how you're so, you had a singular focus almost. I mean, you kind of knew very early on in your life how God was leading you and how the graces of God was directing you in your life. That, um, I was thinking about that. I, I think, you know, happening in your life, I think God shows his graces and he, you know, he, he provides a light to your feet, a lamp to your, your feet. I think, you know, that, that happens to everyone. Sometimes we, we're not quiet enough to hear it. Um, sometimes we, we have so many other things that's, that's going on. We may not, you know, we, we just don't pay attention to God's grace. Is it possible for a person to lose their vocation? Oh, definitely. I, I mean, John Bosco estimated that one in four, maybe one in three, have a religious vocation. Oh. Wow. Yeah. So, I think that, and I don't blame that on people actually saying no. I blame that on them not even hearing the call. And mm -hmm. partly because their society, their family, doesn't even make it possible for them to be aware of a possibility that they should be listening for that call. So, I'm not judging anybody, but he does call a lot. And uh, like in like in Israel, one in I mean one tribe was um, set aside as priests and and Levites, and so that's a tenth or a twelfth of the of the community. And in the church, um, what are we? One billion out of seven or eight billion. So already we even if everyone in the church was a religious, it would still only be you know a tenth of the world. I mean we should all be focusing on our baptismal priestly ministry. Uh, our vocation to be that something for the world, um, and so we all have a duty in our state of life to to minister to the whole world, to give them the the joy of of God. Um, I remember reading years and years ago, before even Muslims were even known very well, or what Islam was. I was a child, and it, said, it was some foreign country, and. Uh, there's a group of Christian missionaries. I'm not even sure if they were Catholic. They might not have been. But they were locked up in one prison cell, a small village or something. And some Muslims were in another um, prison cell. And the Christians were praying and everything. And the Muslims said to them, you know, we think your God is the true God because he makes you so happy. You know, and we do have the joy. I mean, God, our God has, has loves us so much. And, and we have the certainty of eternal life. I mean, Buddhists don't know about the life to come. Atheists don't know that. Communists don't know that. I just feel that our, our, our 
our religion has so much joy to offer the world, and uh, it's, it's a crying shame if Catholics aren't just joyful and, and radiating that joy to everybody around them. Oh, yeah, 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 that's so true. And the world is so much better off as well, I, I think, when religious orders, they, they've always played an important role I mean, in Catholicism as far as even if you, know, you talk about, the, even we go back to the Desert Fathers, we go back to um, and, and the spread of Catholicism throughout the world. We go to the Jesuits um, coming to the West and their their role with the, with the Spaniards. We we look at the role religious orders played during you know very heretical times after after Trent and and uh, the religious orders they they voice saved the church and rescued the church. Um, what does it say in the world today that? You know everything. A lot, you know, people who are listening to this, you know, they, they're kind of in tune to what's going on in the world, what's going on in the church, the challenges that we face, and within or without the threats, within or without Satan constantly on, on the onslaught um, against Christ and his church, um, relentless in his attacks and the people and the things he used to attack his church. What's going on in, in the world today as far as what do you? And we'll talk a little bit about that in, in, in shortly about, you know, the work you're doing to establish a new religious order. But do you think the religious orders are going to be there for us again to reform the church? Yes, and I have that on my videos trying to explain that whole. We, we now, I mean, at the beginning, it wasn't, you know, uh, you know, when, well, in the beginning when religious orders started coming, they didn't have the forward understanding of what the of religious would be, but it has, now we can look back and we kind of can predict what the order now that, that I feel called to start will, what it will do. Um, so basically, um, first of all, I'm just saying an overview, a lot of people don't think about uh, the, the church family as a, as a model of the Trinity. We see that in the, in the natural family, the father is the, is, represents God the father, he's the provider, the kind of the creator, um, the, the, the protector. We have the son, the children. They, um, they they bear witness to the goodness of the father as they walk through the world, and they they're obedient to the father. They have their own their own personalities, but uh, they have that relationship with their father. And the, but then the mother is like the Holy Spirit. She's the bond between the father and the children. She's and she doesn't always have her own identity. She might be like a home mother without her career business card, but she is there as an anchor. And when you don't have the mother in the home, what happens to the family? It doesn't last very well because she is that glue. And uh, Satan has worked really hard to get the mother competing with the father and, and messing up the family really bad. And that's played havoc with our children. So we've got a, the whole creation was built in the image of God in the, in the natural family. But then the church family is also in the image of God because the priestly role, um, that's the father, they feed us the bread, they're the providers, they protect their, their flock with the dogma um, so that we're not, you know, we're not um, confused by, by the predators that come in. And then, um, and then the lay people are Christ in the world. They are out there bearing witness to, to the Father in their workplace, to people they, they should be evangelizing in their workplace. Maybe, maybe they can't do it with words, but they can do it with their joy, with their, their, their life. And 
and uh, that's a very important role, the laity. But then the the religious are like the between role. They're like the most religious. The seventy or eighty percent of religious vocations have generally been women. It's a very feminine role, just like the priestly role is very masculine. Um, but, it, but it isn't. There are, there are plenty of men religious, but um, it's primarily a maternal role because the Holy Spirit is. Um, it's it's uh, the Holy Spirit is actually a feminine. New, uh, uh, gender in the Greek, in the Greek and the old and the on uh, the Old Testament Hebrew, there's something very maternal about the Holy Spirit who hovers. The hover, mother, you know how that is. That um, really because the 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 religious are supposed to be helping the lay people who are um, in the, in the parishes. They're there to assist, like a sister. Some of the mothers who are struggling with their families, helping with the children in different ways, helping with uh, special needs children, helping. Helping, also being a go-between between father, the pastor, who, who only was one man, maybe dealing with hundreds of people in his parish, and the religious there, usually a congregation, is there to help, you know, understand, well, why did father say that from the pulpit, and why do I have to do this, and, or maybe father doesn't have time to catechize, or do the baptism, or whatever, the, um, the instruction, one-on-one, maybe some need it. So the religious were always there in the to, to be that go-between, holding that church together. And uh, you can tell that Satan went after the religious even before he went after the priests. They have disappeared. They got very confused um, in the 60s, but that was actually happening before that. Um, many people think, oh, Vatican II, it ruined the religious vocation. But actually, it was happening in the 20s and 30s and 40s. It was because the Catholic Church was going so fast and so strong, and there were so many pressures on the teaching congregations to churn out teachers, and they were just putting priority on getting the sisters educated, that they didn't give them enough religious formation to understand the sanctity of their vocation, and they were just turning out worker slaves, basically, and so by the time there were six, the 60s came, the whole revolution, my, they just felt like and people were telling them, you'll be more relevant if you aren't wearing a habit or away in a cloister. And so there was a lot of confusion. And believe me, Satan fanned that. But they did not have a good, strong formation. And so it wasn't Vatican II that, that drove them away. It was just the whole 60s movement that confused them. And so now um, we've got to fill that gap again fast because we need that in the church for our stability. Yeah. And you spent 33 years... 33 years um, as a cloister Carmelite. Um, does that, did that time that you spent with your sisters and your order, did that go fast? Or when, when, when the 33 years came and you started a, the sense of call that God was calling you to do something else, how do you look back on your time now as you reflect? Uh, I kind of miss my sisters. They're my family. So you miss, I, I miss the regularity. That's, that's actually the rule in Latin is regula, you know, and uh, religious by their nature have to take vows to a rule because they promise to do certain things, especially to pray seven times a day and to to, to be as a witness of uh, chastity, poverty, and obedience because, um, because wealth 
is a beautiful thing, um, and freedom is a beautiful thing, but the religious is called to be a witness that we're giving up these things because in the end, heaven is greater. And so the, we just have to be a witness for the world to remind them. That's all we're supposed to do is remind you that there's something bigger and our happiness doesn't consist in our bank account or our freedom or, um, you know, your, so, so religious have that duty, but uh, now I got lost on where I was going. What was I going with that? Um, ask me, okay, why, uh, where did I think of, of, of the cloister? So, um, so I miss, I miss my community in that sense. They were my family, but I miss the regularity. That's what I was going to say. Now that I'm living outside the cloister, I say the lay vocation is the irregular life. You cannot control your day. No matter how hard to control your day, you can't. Because someone is going to call, someone is going to have a crisis, or your, your work, your tire is going to go down. You can't be in a cloister insulated from all the things that happen in life. And so you really have to be like St. Anne, just listening to the Holy Spirit. Like, how do I handle this or rearrange my day after I planned it like this? And so, um, but there's, there's, a, there, there's a comfort in the regularity. Because if you know you can count on this, you can count on this block of time to get this thing done. And I'm perpetually behind because I have no idea how to regulate my time now. So, um, but, but I will tell you that um, every day for 33 years, when that, when that clapper was going down the hall, sister banging that clapper to wake everybody up at 5.20 in the morning or whatever, I was excited every morning to get out of bed because I thought, today... I'm going to be saving souls. You know, this is it. You know, this is my, my life was meaningful. I had a reason to be alive. And uh, so I never lost my enthusiasm for my vocation. And I saw that in my sister's faces too. I mean, I, this is, it's a supernatural thing when you have a call. I mean, when you see your wife, if you're in love, do you ever say, oh, I'm so sorry I married you? Don't you say, oh, you're so beautiful. We got another day together. Yeah. You know, I mean, if it's a good marriage, it's a good marriage, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, that's so, true. So, yeah, true. you know, it's a vocation. Yeah. So, so talk talk to us about so what happens after thirty three years or leading up to that. Okay, so so most religious um, somebody did a study on this in England in the nineteen twenties because they wanted to know for their citizens what is the healthy way that people should live, and they were finding that religious lived the longest. So they did some studies on the religious life. You know what are religious doing that you know makes you live so long, and the, the report. Is I don't have all the details, but the story is that um, so the people who investigated, they came back and reported to the board. And they say, is it true that religious live much longer? Yes, it's true. And they say, um, but they say, it's not worth it. <laughs> because in other words, the way they live, it's better to have more fun and die earlier. <laughs> die earlier. Yeah. So yeah, so we so we we fast, you know, we uh, we we go to bed at the regular time and get up in the regular morning, and uh, we do not have exercise. That's the funny thing that uh, we did not. We we were in a, a closed space with minimal, you know, yard work, so you can't go for long walks or take a lot. We didn't take a lot of time for for any time for work and exercise. But, you know, everybody was so limber. And the older mm -hmm. sisters, if they needed a, 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 a knee replacement, I remember one, one, uh, one therapist said, my gosh, she said, you're just, you're just kicking out of bed. How, how can you be so limber at your age? Nobody's like this. And she said, well, we, we genuflect all day long. We kneel all day long. We bow all day long. So it's just calisthenics. The office, the divine office is an exercise in a room. 
weeks if you want. So um, it's just a very gentle, regular life. So I guess, so I expected to live past 100 because most everybody does, you know. So, and be buried in the backyard. So, and I, and I was only, when was I called? 2011 was my experience. So I was, I was, I was about 50. And so I figured I was about halfway. <laughs> <laughs> I had 30 years in the cloister. I had about 50 years to go. That's what I figured. And I was excited at the prospects. So I, I never even had a second thought about, you know, the value of my vocation or anything like that. And so, um, so during Holy Week, we had extra time for prayer. And so I like to pray in this little oratory upstairs that isn't the regular chapel where people come in and out. It's just a place where there's just only room for one person and had a little grill looking down on the, on the sanctuary. And so I, I went in there in the morning. I had some time. I could give up some of my work. So, um, so I went in there, and I was meditating, probably on the passion. I don't even know what I was actually meditating on now. But it was like, it was like suddenly all my thoughts were changing. Like something came in to direct my thoughts to something else. It, was, it, it came down on me, and I started understanding that Christians of all denominations, not just Catholics, would be headed for major persecution. And that the Lord wanted me to step out of the cloister and accompany them and encourage them in the faith. And, and, and I was just thinking about that. And that really wasn't real, real sudden. I mean, we've been, Mary's been talking about that for years, that we're going to head for a chastisement. That was, and it's in the book of Revelation. We've been formed that for 2,000 years. So, but, but it suddenly, I mean, that wasn't on my mind. And it was just very forceful that I have to leave the cloister. This should have been shocking. But it wasn't. It was just like, yeah. And then... That was just an understanding. And then I heard, was it six words? And you leave, he wants me to leave the cloister and promote the rule of Mary. And I turned around. I, mean, I don't know if it was a male or female voice, but it was, a, it was clearly words. And I said, well, well, what is the rule of Mary? And then I heard one more, one more word, lost the let. And so uh, I was just stunned for a minute because I was so surprised at my reaction at the thought of leaving the cloister because I had solemn vows. You can't get out of solemn vows very easily. That is, you have to just prove your, you have a lot of serious reasons for asking the church to dispense you from that. Now, it's not like marriage vows because that's, that's a sacrament and that's really, the church only witnesses those vows. The church doesn't regulate your vows. Oh. But for a religious vows, that those are something the church regulates. So that you can, the church can snap or unsnap them um, if it wants to, if it has enough reason. And so I thought, but, but I was so surprised because after so many years in cloister, for me to walk out, I wasn't, I wasn't concerned about causing a scandal or anything like that. It was like, I, I didn't feel shocked. I felt like, I felt like my husband just came into the room, put his arm around me and said, said honey, I guess my, my work just got transferred to another city. We're going to have to move, but we're going to make new friends, and we're going to be together, and it's going to be just fine. And I thought, gosh, if there's Christians out there being persecuted, I want to be there. I want to be with them. I've got to be there. And so so I ran to the library, and, uh, and we had, and it was so freaky because one of the novices, her mother, had had the idea in her mind that she wanted to go to La Salette uh, like, like a year or two ago. And so she had all, she had sent her daughter, she wanted her daughter to know everything about La Salette. And so we had all the books possible in English on La Salette in our little library. 
And then the mother, something happened, and she never went, and it kind of just faded away. And the daughter put them all in the library because she wasn't interested in La Salette. <laughs> so I had all the books possible on La Salette that were in English. And so I devoured them all, but there was only one book that even mentioned that during the apparition, Our Lady had dictated a rule for a new religious order. And uh, it wasn't in the appendix. Like, like, please, where is this rule? You know, I mean, I can't believe this. And so uh, so I thought, wow. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, La Salette, most of the apparition is in very apocalyptic language, all symbolic. And so what if this rule is just symbolic? And what if this is Satan deceiving me? And I end up reading some symbolic rule that was never meant for a real religious order. So what if this is a hoax? You know, I know, there, I mean, St. John of the Cross has loads and loads of work on, on religious. You know, I warn you that Satan's going to try to talk to you or, or, or confuse you. So be on the lookout for any deceptive revelations. And I'm thinking, yeah, there's three ways to vet this. First, you have to know yourself that you, whether or not you possibly imagined it. And I think I would never imagine leaving the cloister. That, that's ruled out. No, no way. And then two, um, uh, I forgot. It could be Satan or three, it could be God. And, but Satan is very clever. I mean, very clever. So I, I knew I could be deceived. And I thought, I ain't going to mention this to nobody until I read that rule. And so, uh, because, because can you imagine how unsettling that is in the cloister if, if word gets around that one sister's thinking about leaving? You know, I mean, that, that's just so unstabling. And I didn't want the priors to be thinking that. And so now at this time, I was the, I was the, the one and only data processor in the cloister. For, for long reasons, I won't go into all this reason, but I had I had the only computer, and I did a lot of work for the monks um, who lived nearby, and they were trying to restore the Carmelite liturgy, so I was helping them with all of the Carmelite rite things, and that's why I love your Divine Symphony and how you go through the Mass, that's so fantastic. Everybody get David's book, Divine Symphony, oh, I can't really quote, <laughs> hold it up somehow, you got to get this book, everybody get this book. I don't think the Skype is doing very well. But, um, yeah, oh, David, you're, you're, you're fantastic. And so, uh, so I, but I, we didn't have internet connection. I never did that. But, um, but I had permission to, um, to ask the Turn sister, to ask several benefactors if they would um, surf the internet if I had a question to bring it back on a flash drive so they could, they could get some information. So I began very cryptically writing notes to the Turn sister saying, well, you know, we're doing, we want to compare the rule of St. Albert to the rule of um, St. Francis for, for the liturgy. You know, I was kind of making it, I was just very vague. I didn't really quite lie, David. I really didn't quite lie. And then, and then we would also like to compare that to the rule of Mary. Would they be possible to get those digitally? And so they would bring me back the rule of Albert and the rule of Francis, but not the rule of Mary. So I tried different set of rules because there's there's seven rules. So, so I tried different benefactors. So I, I, I could only ask about once a month. Otherwise, it would get suspicious. And I was with different uh, people. But after a year, not one, I had every possible digital copy of the rules, of the seven rule, six rules of religious life. But not one brought me the rule of Mary. Uh, and so, um, but in the meantime, I was studying the Lawsalette books. And I was very much taken with, with La Salette. I realized how important that apparition was. And, uh, and I could not get out, of the, get out of my mind that I was being called. And so I started working to start trying to 
work to bring some of my projects to completion and that, that people could carry on because I would have to train people to carry on after me, whatever I was doing, because I was the main seamstress for the habits. I was the habit vesture for the brothers and I was, and I, I was doing so many things. So I was trying to make patterns and trying to get ways to train other sisters without them realizing I was going to be ditching them soon. So um, I was very, very busy. Um, but, but I kept thinking, how do I know, you know? And so, here it was a year later it was approaching because I had that experience in Holy Week and now we were back in Lent and I was thinking I'm, I'm out of options I don't have it and I can't and I'm not going to tell anybody about this unless unless I see that rule so you know St. Joseph's Feast was coming around and St. Teresa of Avila you know she's the one that promoted devotion to St. Joseph so in Carmel the Feast of St. Joseph is almost bigger than Christmas so Joseph is the big deal in Carmel so wow. I thought, you know, St. Joseph, you're the protector of the order, but also you would be protector of Mary's, um, of Mary's order, too, because if it's, if it's her order, then you're going to be the protector here. So I said, St. Joseph, I didn't make a novena, to you, and I'm begging you. I said, make it known to me whether this was an illusion of Satan, and I will drop this and never think about it again, or else get me that rule. So... Um, so on the eve of St. Joseph, it happened to be Laetari Sunday. And so the brothers, um, they do all the Gregorian chants. So it wasn't, it's not a Tridentine Mass, but they chant everything, all the major things in Latin and plus all the major Gregorian chants. So it was a glorious Laetari Sunday Mass. Oh, it was so beautiful. And I was coming out on cloud nine. It was so joyful. And I was taking off my mantle. We wore a white mantle for, for the liturgies. And I was folding it up to put on my choir box. And there on my choir box was the rule of, of Mary in three languages printed out, and then a flash drive with the rule of Mary in six languages, and a post-it note that says, Sister, we found these months ago, but we forgot to bring it to you. And I said, okay, St. Joseph, I got it. Wow. wow. <laughs> so I ran upstairs to read it, and it's one of the shorter rules, and it was not apocalyptic or, or symbolic. It was a very serious, down-to-earth, canonically approvable rule. And it was so Marian and so beautiful. And I was always in Carmel a little bit out of my element because I entered Carmel thinking it was the, it was the Order of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Order of the Bound Scapular. But, you know, St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross, they only mention Mary just a handful of times in their voluminous works. I mean, it's all about Christ. And, uh, and the rule, and the Carmelite rule, it only mentions Mary in the title, the rule of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, period. That's the last time you hear of Mary. So when it wow. comes down to Carmelite spirituality, um, it's really Mary of Nazareth. They're imitating her quiet union with her life. It's not the Mary that goes out to be the disciple. And so, um, so I grew up in a Catholic, you know, time when there was apparition talk all the time with, with Bernadette and Fatima and Garabandal and everything coming out. So my family was used to Marian apparitions. So we think of Mary as out of the, out of the cloister, you know, out, out and about. Yeah, yeah. And so I was always kind of, you know, disappointed that karma wasn't more Marian, but here was a rule that was all Mary's. So, so I, I went to my superior and told her about the whole thing. And she says, Sister Anne, I know you very well. You did not make this up. And she said, you have to follow this. And so she called the chancery and started working with the, with the archbishop about how do you get dispensed properly for, um, for that. And, and also, it was an active rule. So, and I only heard the words promote the rule. I didn't hear any words found something new. Right. So 
So I didn't think I had to start something. I thought I could join an active Marian community and just offer them the rule as a deeper inspiration. So, um, so that's basically why I ended up, long story, how I ended up with the SALT community, the Society Related to the Trinity. And I joined with them for two years and was hoping that they would adopt the rule. And they were very interested in it and took it very seriously. And I thought that they would do it. And I, and I got the habit and I was living, learning the apostolic life. I just loved the community. And I was very happy to be just one of the sisters and let the superiors deal with implementing the rule. And, uh, but, but the superior general called me to her. I had, had to drive down to Albuquerque one day. And she said, I want to tell you our decision about this, this rule. And she said, we've decided that we would have to change our constitution somewhat to, to you know, envelop all the charisms of this rule. And we just don't feel called to do it. So here's, here's $500, and you have to start this order. And we'll give you good recommendations, so good luck. <laughs> so I had to walk out. I was on my own. So uh, I was so shocked, so shocked. I just started crying. I couldn't believe it. I was totally unprepared because I was never in my mind, you know, what will I do when I start this order? It was never, never. I had no plan. Mm. So what do you do? You go home to mom. That's when you're stuck. <laughs> so I went back to Wichita. So you're disappointed, huh? I was disappointed what? Are you disappointed about the salt then? Um... Well, no, I saw that as God's will. But, but uh, so I realized, I mean, so, I mean, I, felt I got a wonderful training in, uh, in the active life. And, uh, and so, and then I, I have lo loads of, you know, years and years with, I know, the religious life. And, uh, and the rule of Our Lady... I feel like I've had marvelous background for doing this job, but, uh, but you know, it was easier to let somebody else do it. So now I had to start from scratch to find a bishop and uh, get this, get this off the ground. So, so yeah. So. And the, the rule of Mary isn't, is there, there, there's 33 different rules, right? No, only six, only six so far. This would be the seventh. So, so, okay. Right. Okay. No, it was 33 years. There's 33 points in this rule of Mary. Maybe that's where you're getting that. points. Perhaps, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, most people don't did realize. You, did, you, did you always draw that you were in that life for 33 years? Did you ever connect those two? Or is that just coincidental for you? Uh, well, you know, 33 is always a mystical number for Jesus' years. So, so, yeah, a lot of people say 33 years. That's a real mystical number. Yeah, you lived as long as Christ in the world. So they think that's a sign that yeah I was I was prepared so whatever they want to do with it I don't care <laughs> I didn't plan it it just happened yeah man that's I'm I'm so excited about your journey and I'm excited to see what happens next I really am and I know one thing that you you're you're, you're doing as you wait on the um because you're waiting on a bishop at this point right 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 yeah. Um, and one thing you're doing is you're working on a conference. That's one thing that you're working on that, that hopefully will, um, I know the whole Corona thing has thrown everything out of, out of, out of sorts, but, um, so what's, what's some of the other, can you tell us about some of the other steps that you, that, that you, that you've been happy about and how things are going about starting your new religious order? What's this name going to be? What's your habit going to look like? Can you tell us anything? Yeah, I can tell you lots. Um, you just got to control me, otherwise I get too excited. Um, all right, so I came out, and uh, my mom at that time had a spare bedroom. She was happy to accommodate. And so, and I had no 
with some novices who had left. And so I was in contact with different people in different dioceses for a while, trying to find members. Because usually um, you can't impress a bishop unless you've got a little band ready to join you. Um, so, um, so, and I didn't think, I didn't even want Wichita because I figured Wichita is already Catholic. It doesn't need to be evangelized, you know. So I'm not even thinking about Wichita. I just happened to be here because my family's here. Um, but people kept telling me, you've got to meet Father Bernie Georges. You've got to talk to Father Bernie Georges. And I said, I don't care about a priest in this diocese. I, I, I want to get out of this diocese. And so finally, finally I said, okay, I'll go talk to him. And so Father Bernie Georges, I don't know if you've heard of the Totus Tuus summer program for Catholic youth. That um, is mostly in Kansas, but it's starting to branch out into other places. Yeah, he's, from you. Yeah, from your okay, he's, he started it um, as a young, as a, even when he was a seminarian. And it's kind of like Catholic summer camp, except that the focus is to deepen their spirituality and to lead them especially into Marian consecration. And so it's blossomed into a lot of things, and now the diocese took it over. So he, he's not the main part. He doesn't push it anymore. He's a pastor. So um, but it's really taken off a lot of places, and uh, it's been going on for years. But it came from his own um, love for Mary. His family is very close to apparitions, Father Gobi and stuff. So I sat down and told him my journey, and he was like bouncing out of his chair. He said, this is, this is so exciting. This diocese needs this so badly. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, there's religious communities here, but they're, but you know, they, some are, are, are very conservative, they wear the habit and everything, and they're good, but... But, you know, they go to the classroom and then they go home to the cloister. They're not really interacting. Whereas your rule, you are going to be out ministering to the people. And this is a charism that's really needed. And he said, I don't care if you want to start this bishop or wherever you start, but I'm going to help you. And so, so um, one of the first things he did was take out all his savings and uh, rented for me a little, a little apartment very close to his parish. And he said, you just sit there, start a YouTube channel, and start talking about Mary. Because he said you know more about Mary than anybody I've ever met. And you you know so much about all the Marian apparitions because you've had years and years and years to meditate on them. And you've got the most unique attitude toward them because you don't see them as like, here she says prayer and penance, and there she says pray the rosary and prayer and penance. It's like a lot of people think she just puts on different costumes and goes to different countries and says the same thing. But she said, you see all the unique aspects and how they interconnect and how they, they branch out to create as an overall message that these aren't random things, but like pieces in a mosaic. He said, you've got to start talking about um, all this stuff. And also, I had years and years um, to see what Mary has said about the book of Revelation, because she keeps telling us that we are living in it now. And so I started, so I started talking. And uh, Father Bernie is known as a big talker. He loves to just gab, and I can now gab him. And so... Uh, <laughs> so he said, sister, you are just, he said, you, 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 you were silent too long in the cloister. Now you're just making up for us. So, yeah, so I love to talk. And so from that time, I, I just started, it. people wanted to come and listen to me. And so I ended up with adopting a whole prayer group that adopted me. And they became what they, they see as their future lay, lay third order group of this order. And so oh, I ended you're, up. With, you, already have a, you already have a third order. We don't have a first order, but we got third order. And, uh, but you know, the, the biggest challenge for me to, to write constitutions or to put something together to prove that this rule was given during an apparition and the apparition was approved and everything and the whole thing was approved, it's all in French. It's never been out of French. And all those, 
it's just so complicated. There's hundreds and hundreds of pages of important documents in French, and I don't read French. And so I tried for a long time to find French translators and try, and I myself didn't know the whole story because so much of it's in French. And so, uh, and in the meantime, I ended up, we, um, Father Brennan wanted us to start different different programs and do little retreats and different apostolates so that we could tell the bishop we know what we're doing. And, and so, um, and we talked to different bishops at a time, but they, would, they just, they just said, I don't feel called to this. I don't feel called to promote this. And Father Bernie could never figure out why we were being turned down by really good bishops who were pro-religious. Um, uh, it's, but he finally figured out, he said, because you aren't offering a clear apostolate. And so you've got to just stay here with your lay theotokens and develop an apostolate and stop asking bishops for a while. He said, okay. And so um, in the meantime, um, all of a sudden, about just this past year, French translators just became again approaching me and said, "You got anything I can help you translate?" And so, uh, but there's 2,500 pages of French documents that need to be translated. Um, some dissertations, the letters of Melanie, because she lived for like 50 years after the apparition, and so she had a correspondence that was unbelievable. And people were asking her, "Now, what did this mean? What did this ask? What does the Antichrist mean? What does this look like?" And I can't say that because it's in French, so I have a letters so I need to get these in French and so I've got I'm probably managing now juggling some 30 different volunteers and some of them say they'll take 10 pages and others say they'll take a book and others say you know they try it and then they give up and then someone else steps in so I've got all these pieces but gradually I'm getting them all coordinated and I've almost got the whole thing in French I think it won't be too much longer now and so I'm at a position where I can start you know drawing upon them for writing constitutions but all this time I mean I've been out of the cloister for quite a while now and all the attractive lay people I mean I've been on my, my YouTube channel has it's, it's going to be 9,500 subscribers now yeah. pushing 10,000 and the website has a lot of subscribers and and a lot of people YouTube it says you've only one in a hundred will subscribe so if you've got 10,000 subscribers you've got you've got a hundred thousand viewers or more maybe 10 maybe more and so there's a lot of people who have heard about this, but you know, where are the vocations coming? I mean, nobody's asking to be a sister. Like, and, and in a way, I keep saying, I'm glad, I'm glad, because I got so much to do, and I don't have time to, to, to deal with individual formation yet. And so, but this last year, that I'm ready, I'm ready, where are they? And um, and an Easter, um, last, when February, about, I guess, Lent. A woman approached me, and she had been in um, a religious life, but just felt she couldn't make vows, and she didn't know why. And she she was so disappointed and embarrassed that she left just before vows. And uh, then she started, she, somebody gave her a scholarship to get a master's in theology, so she's doing that. And then she was she was just flipping channels, I guess, and found my YouTube channel and started reading the rule. She goes, oh my gosh, this is why I couldn't make vows in that order. I'm supposed to come here. And so she's already formed. She's got her whole initiate done. And she's just fantastic. She's wonderful. She's on the East Coast now. But because of the COVID, she's delayed on defending her master's till September. So she can't come join me till September, October. So And then after Easter, out of the blue, I get um, a contact from a Dominican priest um, and he said that someone introduced him to my channel, and he was blown out of the water. And he said that, I mean, he's been marrying his whole life, and but it was only a couple of years ago that he um, he never made the consecration, the demand for consecration, because he refused to do it unless he could do it like a dignity. 
meditation retreat, like 30 days in solitude. So he could do it really solemnly. So he had the opportunity. He had a vacation or something a couple summers ago. And uh, he made that, be the 33 days, and then made his Marian de Montfort consecration on the Feast of the Assumption. And he wasn't expecting anything, but when he made that consecration, he felt very strongly called that he, Mary was asking him to leave his beloved Dominicans and start something new. And he didn't have a clue what that meant. And so he's been trying to figure it out. And then some friend told him about my channel. So in, in Easter, he said, oh, my gosh, this is absolutely it. So he said, he said, I'm your first priest. We're going to start this. We've got to find a bishop soon. So, so it's all happening soon. So we are actively trying to um, prepare now to approach a particular bishop we have in mind. And, uh, and we have some property that we hope to acquire that will be accommodating to lots of vocations. But I can't give any more details yet. Yeah. Man, I love how the grace of God just moves, and sometimes we we, we sort of lose patience, and um, seem things seem to be not coming together fast enough, and then all of a sudden it's like the the cup of blessing just overflows, right? <laughs> oh, and also, and also the last year, um, well, two years, I guess. No, last year. Um, I knew my, my YouTube channel had to be bigger and more complicated because if it was going to be the base for the order and also to house all these apparitions because a lot of it's in um, public domain. You can't, I mean, and, but, it's in, but, it's, but it's no longer being printed. So it's hard to get some of these old books. So I was scanning them in and I thought, I just want to upload these stuff on the apparitions to, um, for just to be out there. So I know my, my website had to be much more expanded way beyond you know my 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 cloister nun capabilities what could I do and so one night about about 11 o'clock on my time I get this email last summer from a gentleman in uh, New Mexico and he says I've been sharing your apocalypse videos all over my parish with the approval of my pastor I'm so excited about your channel but I haven't reached out to you I had to wait until I retired so that I could volunteer to be your IT man <laughs> so Wow. And he was he was the IT man for years for a very large company. So he is so professional. So we <laughs> together we have been revamping this whole this whole thing. Um, yeah. Um, if you go to the start the, the door, go to the welcome door, and then hit the welcome door, and then hit start here. Then you'll see a tour of the website and how big it's going to be. Yeah, so it's fun. Yeah. It's well, fun. Well done. Can you see this? My, I think my Skype is breaking up. Can you see this rosary? Yes, I this can. Show? These are big white beads. This could be my side rosary for the habit. We've almost got the habit made. Wow. Melanie um, saw the religious in, um, in vision while Mary gave the rule, and she describes the habit in pretty good detail. And so it's a black full-length habit with a big rosary, and we'll wear a white sash, kind of like a bishop sash, and then it has two streamers to the hem. And on the on the ends of the streamers are embroidered some some cryptic monograms, and then the sisters wear a long black veil with a coif, a white coif, and then the then the priests, you know, this um, so so yeah, the habit's coming along. And I was a habit this year, so I have a few patterns I took with me from Carmel to build the base. Yeah, I am so excited. <laughs> yeah, this is so exciting. Oh wow, um, man. Why are, why are apparitions important? Well, the funny thing is most Catholics today think that 
very just naturally appears. She's been appearing all the time. But in reality, she did not start appearing with messages for the world until 1830. So the miraculous medal was the very first message for the world. Now, in the past, she might appear locally to deal with, you know, some local event or to comfort someone in some particular personal thing. But she never gave messages for the world until 1830. So Catherine Labouret was the first one. And still, that wasn't super public because Catherine Labouret um, never even, she only told the confessor and the confessor told the bishop. So until she died, uh, people her own community knew that somebody in their enormous community, the Daughters of Charity were so huge, um, somebody had received the miraculous medal vision, but they didn't know which sister. And so Catherine Labouret lived almost 70 years keeping that secret. So she did not you know, engage with the public or tell them, you know, you know, you couldn't, couldn't go and interview you, her like modern apparitions. So, um, so the first public apparition, um, well, then there was another one that was in the cloister. That was to a Carmelite, um, not well known yet, uh, Mother uh, Sister Marie St. Pierre. And I don't know if you've ever seen the tan book, Veronica's Veil. Um, that gives the apparitions of the Holy Face. Those are hers. And uh, that was a similar situation. She was supposed to give those revelations to the bishop to get them known that he wanted reparation for the profanation of the Sunday. People weren't going to Mass on Sunday, and they were using the name of Christ in vain. Yeah. And so, so, but the bishop just wasn't buying it, and he was, I don't know if he's Masonic or what his problem was, but uh, there was a lot of Freemasonry in the clergy in those times. So he just wasn't, he was paying no attention. So she began urging Our Lady to find somebody else to make this known. And very shortly, um, Mary appeared at La Salette, not very far from Tours, France. So, um, so I, I think La Salette is kind of the fruit of Carmelite intercession. I look at it that way. And so, so this was the very first public Marian apparition because um, even though it was only one apparition, one very long one, to two shepherds up in the two hillbilly shepherds way up high in the Alps in France. I know um, about the hillbillies. That's funny. <laughs> they were so backward. You can't believe how backward those kids were. They were no education whatsoever. And so, um, but nobody was there to witness it like Bernadette. So that, it wasn't there. But they came home immediately and were so excited. And, uh, and But the people all believed them. And then they could interview them the rest of their lives. They were accessible. And so they actually were taken in to live with some nuns who had an orphanage so that the sisters could kind of regulate the pilgrims who were deluging the whole place because this was an enormous thing for all of Europe. I mean, that Mary appeared to somebody and you could go talk to them. I mean, this was unheard of. That was the first one in, lost in, in Europe. So that was the groundbreaker really for Mar modern Marian apparitions. And then after that, it was just bang, 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 bang. She was all over the place. She was over one every 10 years or less. She was everywhere. And that's been going on to the present. And, you know, some are still not approved because, you know, they have to go through the bishops and stuff like that. But, and then even, I tell people, even if it has the highest possible approval, it never becomes dogmatic. No, no Catholic has to say, I believe in this to be a Catholic. You can always say that cup of tea is not my dish, so I forget it. And, you know, that you can't judge another person for for a private apparition. You know, that that's something we never cram down private apparitions on people's throats. But it, but it is different in the sense that a really private apparition, I like to give you an example of St. Teresa's mother. Okay, she felt she wanted to become a nun, but the sister said, you don't have a religious vocation. Um, you go home and pray more about it. And so 
But she said, I don't know who I would marry. I don't know anybody. And so one day she was crossing a stream at the bridge where in her town, and she heard a voice say, look at that man there that's coming towards you. That's the man you're going to marry. And so, you know, uh, she didn't go say, you know, hi, can I marry you? She didn't do that. <laughs> but, you know, it was a private locution, a private apparition. And very shortly after that, she got an invitation to some social event. And there she met, and it was a natural courtship, and it went quite fast because she realized this was this was the one. And uh, so, so, but it was a confirmation to her that she should give up the idea of sisterhood and go with marriage. Now, that is a private apparition. That was never investigated by the church. There were no witnesses. You and I, we don't have to believe it. It doesn't matter. But when it comes to, to messages for the world, those apparitions are kind of in a class by themselves. And St. John Paul, he would refer to them as so-called private apparitions because they're not quite private. You know? And so there might be more of a, more of a conscious duty of Catholics to, to sit up and listen. When the mother of God comes to the earth with a message, can we just say, I'm busy tonight. <laughs> you know, I don't want to listen tonight. So um, so they are a big deal. Um, so, so yeah. So anyway... I compare this hiatus in history of the Catholic Church. She says she's not going to appear much longer, if you can believe Mejigori, which is not yet approved. However, um, the, um, there's now a papal envoy on the site there with the papal flag and encouraging pilgrims and saying that the messages are believable. So um, it isn't rated as supernatural yet by the Catholic Church, and a lot of people are have, have been experiences with, with different craziness that went on around Medjugorje, but and I understand that. So apparently at Medjugorje, Mary has said that um, um, when I stop here, that's that's the last public apparitions I'll be giving. So she's already appeared there, what, almost 40 years? So we kind of think it's coming to an end soon. So, um, so that would be around, say, 18... 1830 to say 2030, that's 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 um, 200 years. And that corresponds perfectly to almost all the Old Testament prophets because people tend to think, oh, the Old Testament, when you were a Jew, there was always some prophet, you know, around. But that wasn't so. It was only, only the 200 years before the fall of the temple because the prophets were talking about that. They were saying, if you guys don't get your act together, mm. God is going to bring this whole whole shenanigans to an end and and exile you and and uh, he's really upset with your syncretism you're you're having all these other liturgies and other gods and temples in the same town and you don't realize that you are unique and you're supposed to be converting these people not to be praying with them and worshiping with them and all this stuff and so the prophets are really giving it to the people but they always have this message of hope they say well yeah you're probably not going to listen and you're probably going to end up in, in exile. But once you're in exile, you'll have a period of 70 years to do penance, which corresponded to the 70 years of, of Sabbath, which they did not keep holy. So apparently 490 years, they weren't keeping the Sabbath very well. So 70 years of penance, and then God will bring you back home. You'll rebuild the temple, and the Messiah will come. So that's all in the Old Testament. So, so all the messages were doom and gloom. If you don't if you don't do this, and yet there's always this hope. But, you know, um, we don't have any real testimonies in the Bible that anybody converted at any of those prophets. In fact, most of the time the prophets were killed. I mean, they were, their message was not 
taken seriously. And, and the priests and the people who were responsible, they generally ran them out of town. And they said, you're crazy, and this is all private made up. You made this up, and we have, the, and, and we have our own worship, and we've got the temple, and no one's going to mess with us, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so nobody converted. So who were those messages for? They were for the remnant of, that was in Babylon, and there the people said, look, it all came true. And if all the bad came true, then the good must come true. So we got to believe that we're going to go back home. So we got to hang on to the faith. We got to teach our children, and we got to go back home and rebuild that temple, and and this time obey. So, um, and when I came back to going back home from Babylon seven years later, um, don't think that all the Jews said, "Oh yeah, let's all go back and rebuild." They said, "Well, gosh, we got a nice place here. We like it here. We've always been living here." A lot did not go home. Um, only only a remnant of believers who were serious went home. Mm-hmm. So what was rebuilt of the Jewish church that gave rise to the Maccabees and then soon the apostles and the then the whole the whole crowd that listened to Jesus? That was a very strong remnant that had gone through the fire, and so I think that's what we're facing now. Um, a lot of people just don't pay any attention to Mary's apparitions. They they just take it as a joke or they say, well, you know, this is and so. It doesn't bother me because I'm thinking they're really not for converting the world. They're for converting the church and uh, and for comforting us. Because Mary's saying, yes, it's really bad. She's actually told people that, told, told, she's given some very strong, strong indications that we're living in the worst times of the entire history of the world. It was not this bad at the time of the flood, and it will not be this time bad at the time of the end of the world. We're living in a time dominated by demons. And she said, it's so bad, I'm partly here just to comfort you, because you're going through hell, and, and you're raising your children in hell. And uh, so she's partly that, but she's also assuring us that no matter how bad it gets, and how, no matter how corrupt the church gets, and how, how compromising the liturgies get, and maybe she says the church will almost look like it's dying, and maybe gone away, she says it will revive, and I will triumph, and my son will triumph. And so that really is the message of hope that um, I think this order has to give. And it's not about me talking, it's about us giving, making sure everybody has access to all the words Mary has said since 1830, because it's for now. Yeah. What, you know, a person who's not Catholic, you know, listening to the, this segment right here, um, who is talking about, what is this lady talking about? I mean, she's talking about Mary, who I think is dead, Talking about her evangelizing and and appearing, I don't even know what the word apparition means. I mean, this, this may sound like silly talk, but what's really what's a good working definition? Because you've you're you're one of our experts on on this subject. You're you're, you're known for this. I mean, what what, do, what would you have a as a working definition of a Marian apparition? Well, I don't think it's totally foreign to Protestants, and half my family is Protestant. My dad was a convert, so most of them are still Methodists. Um, <laughs> so I love the Protestants, and I've, I've attended many of their liturgies, I mean, of their Bible classes, and I've made friends among them and prayed with them. And um, and has indicated many times that in the end, we're going to get rid of all these denominations, and, and Jesus is, prayer is going to be fulfilled, that we'll all be one. And I'm finding that a lot of Protestants are, are having the same trauma in their churches all throughout everywhere because um, there's so many of their, of their hierarchies abandoning some of the New Testament. They're going along with the gay thing and things that are not in the Bible. And so um, 
the, the understanding of marriage as being askewed. Um, so, so, so there's a lot of, of drama and uh, uh, of, of in the Protestant Church. And right now, if you go on YouTube, I mean, they're having dreams and visions left and right about the end times and the whole rapture movement and uh, and uh, some think it's the end of the world. Some think it's 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 just the tribulation. A lot of them think it's the apocalypse. So this is not foreign to Protestants at all. We are in very good company, actually. And a lot of them actually tune in and listen to all sorts of Catholic revelations that are going on. And right now, we have a ton of prophets in the Catholic Church who might be false prophets. Because, gee, I, you know, there's just a lot of unvetted prophecies going on. If you, There's just, oh, this one, I won't mention the names, but I haven't vetted a lot of these. And some of them... Anonymous. If you can't get their last names, or, you know, how do you vet someone that's not giving you their last name? I mean, this is yeah. not a people. I I have a, a YouTube called How to Vet Prophecy. So if you're, mm. I, you know, be be careful because Jesus warned us that many people are going to be saying all sorts of stuff and having us run here or there, think it's going to happen this date yeah. or that date. Yeah. So so I don't think the pro I don't think the Protestants find it strange that. Um, having visions and somebody appearing and telling you stuff. They have angels appearing to them. Sometimes their dead relatives appear to them and, mm -hmm. and warn them. So I, I'm not sure that they need a definition. I mean, ha apparitions happened all the time. In, in Paul's time, Jesus appeared and talked to Paul sometimes, gave him direction on his life. And uh, a lot of, like Gideon, and, and them had visions of angels um, or someone appearing. So I don't know. I guess yeah, maybe yeah, in that in that context, I don't think it appears to form the the reality of if you believe that um, people are in heaven, and if you believe what Jesus saw Moses um, um, in in um, Elijah, if you if you believe that, then it's not too foreign. But I suppose the people who think that um, that the Catholics asking Mary to pray for them, that whole thing. I guess that segment of people who are more anti-Catholic, hearing that they may have some some um, reticence with the notion, and those who think that there's nobody in heaven, that we're all waiting for the judgment, theologically, that group of of non-Catholics, those are the ones who may be more. Hmm. What is what is this? What is this talk going on right now? Well, you know, I, I don't really get it because so many Protestants they will ask their friends to pray for them. So, so if Mary's alive, why can't she pray for them? You know, I that's um. So I don't get why there's a problem with intercession of saints to pray for us. Um, it's just like a family member. That's the Catholics believe they're all family members. You know, we're all in one big family. So, so I don't quite get that logic. Um, but as far as Mary being extra special, um, it's it's. I had trouble with that too. Basically, in um, in Carmel, I had a I had a hard time because in my Carmel, they were pushing the demand for consecration. You you you. It's a prayer to Mary where you offer yourself to her service, um, asking to belong to Jesus through her. Yeah. And, and I did not get that. I mean, I mean that wasn't taught in my Catholic background, and so and I took. I, and my vows as a as a as a as a religious were to Christ or to God, and so what what was Mary doing in the middle of that? You know, I, I didn't mind having her example, her intercession, but why was I supposed to? What was her role in getting in between me and God like that? 
So I had a really, I, I needed to understand that. And so, um, and you would be surprised how that was not, I went through all sorts of tomes and tomes. I studied it for years in the Carmelite Library. We had a fabulous, fabulous library. Um, all sorts of church fathers and a dog, a dog, and it's really not covered. And so, um, uh, I just, I was, I was out in the woods one day. I said, what is this obsession with Mary? It's like, like I can't, I, I just have to, I have to almost be Mary. Why am I being called to this? I don't understand. I want to almost be Mary, be one with her. And this is so weird. And so I went back into the house and I went to the library. I said, Lord, just, just help me. And I put my hand up and I reached blindly up to one book in the, on the library shelf. And I pulled down a book with St. Maximilian Colby's letters and mm -hmm. said, and said, I have to be Mary. I have to be Mary. And you monks, you need to talk talking about Mary because so far nothing has been said about Mary, which is ridiculous because there's, you know, thousands of books on Mary. But he meant that this is not understood, like her role. And so from there on, it was like I had to start from scratch. Uh -huh. And the only place I could find to start was the Bible, it was Genesis, because she was supposed to be the new Eve, according to the earliest church fathers. They called her the new Eve. But who was Eve supposed to be? I mean, Eve failed. So what would have happened if Eve had done her duty? What would that have looked like? And so we found out what Adam looked like. He looked like what Christ did. But what would Eve supposed to be? And so um, I began exploring that in depth until I finally had all this new theology basically on Genesis um, because you know do you know I don't know if most people know this now but but for the Middle Ages for many centuries it was forbidden for theologians to explore anything that went on in the garden because um, it got to be such speculative theology and there were so many arguments that theologians were getting into in the Middle Ages that finally the Pope said you guys it didn't happen. There was a fall. So let's just move on. Let's just let's just focus on what did happen, not just speculate what could have happened or should have happened or didn't happen. And so I'm, I'm not going to let you study that anymore. And so it was only John Paul who basically opened the doors again because he said we can't understand marriage or what God really intended for marriage until we go back to the beginning. And so from then on, and and uh, Father Renero Cantalisa, he said he's opened the doors. He's opened the doors to Genesis, which we have been closed for centuries. And so I felt so relieved that I had permission, so to speak, to start meditating on this. And, <laughs> and so I, I, I poured that out in, in a series of YouTube, um, a playlist called Beyond Consecration to Jesus Through Mary. And I talk about who Eve should have been. Um, as far as I, I, I could tell, and how Mary stepped up into that role and what she is for us now. So that's that's the short answer I can give you. Yeah, that's beautiful talk. Now, you, you touched on this a little bit, um, and you touched on it as well as in your, your talk about um, Dr. Taylor Marshall, his some issues he said he had with um, the Second Vatican Council, the church documents. What, overall, what do you think... What do you think people get wrong about the Second Vatican Council? Well, David, actually, Father Wynandy released an article in First um, 
uh, inside the Vatican just yesterday, and he deals with just exactly, most of my comments have been people saying, yeah, but how can you defend Vatican II when you can see all the things that went wrong? And I said, it was the spirit that was with the implementation. And I was so surprised that people just couldn't separate the, way the documents themselves and the way they were implemented. And it just wasn't clear. And so, but then Father Wendy, um, someone sent me a link yesterday, and he has this magnificent expose on, on he lived through it because he's, he's he must be seventy now, and so he was he was he was a young religious when the council was out. So um, so I just read his letter out loud. So I got the audio. I, up, I uploaded it this morning. So I talk. I just tell you. I, I just read what Father Father Wynandy said. That that um, he says he said it's completely fantasy to think that the day before Vatican II the church was strong and sound and all the religious and priests and lay people had deep spiritual lives and then and then Vatican II happened and suddenly they forgot all of their theology and went crazy. He said no. We needed a council exactly because it was it was a house of cards in many ways. It was an outside appearance like the Pharisees you were keeping all the laws but inside they weren't really didn't have a really deep relationship with Jesus Christ, and uh, and the sisters, like I said, they were formed too fast. Many of them were turned out to be school teachers and slaves, but they did not understand their own um, value. And now we know the seminaries where they were grooming homosexuals. We have a huge corruption that was going on. So um, the documents themselves are fabulous. And uh, that's what I try to tell people. I'm afraid I'm a little harsh in that video because I'm so impassioned. I'm not good at being kind. And But I love Taylor Marshall. I wouldn't have wasted my time with someone I didn't care about. And I love his followers. And I really think the conservative Catholics who believe in the Bible, in the catechism, in the dogma, we can't be bickering about against each other. We've got to get past that and respect each other. You know, if, if one person wants to go to this liturgy, another wants to go to that liturgy, so long as they're, they're okay, I mean, that's just a matter of personal taste. I mean, that's fine. But to cram it down each other's throats, what you got to do or something, um, no, we gotta, we got to hold hands. And we got to build a wall against the culture today. So um, it really, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, I hope to be on dialogue with Taylor Marshall uh, as a brother someday without us being, I hope that he will understand that he's got too far and like like Paul had to call Peter back and say hey listen brother uh, we, we went over the line right there but get back in line so it's just a fraternal correction that's all it was meant to be it was not meant to bash Taylor at all and oh, yeah. so that, that's what I was trying to just, just fix things because uh, people have been very much hurt now in this diocese of Wichita we are not suffering and we've got more priests I mean a couple of years ago we had 60 seminarians most of them are ordained by now. We we churn out more seminarians than most more priests than most dioceses combined in this country, and that's because the liturgies in this diocese are so reverent, and uh, your vestments are gorgeous. People people spend a lot of money keeping up the churches; yeah, they're just gorgeous, and. Uh, People would not put up with crazy liturgies. There's no way. If a priest gets out of line, I mean, they get a letter to the bishop real quick. I mean, they're just serious about their faith. And, 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 and uh, Catholic schools are free here because we tithe. 
um, people tithe, and if enough people tithe in the parish, then they don't have to charge tuition for the for the students and the families. You know, they, they got kids to feed. They don't really have have extra money for for expensive education. But so that's how we keep up our Catholic schools because because the faith is so strong here. So I suppose I'm not I'm not I'm not attuned to how much pain there is. In, in the liturgies in some parishes and some dioceses, which are really awful. Right. So I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm a sensitive and, and understanding if I had experienced that pain, what they're going through and why they exit the church into these, these other venues. Um, so I, I apologize for my harshness in that video, but I'm not taking it down for the moment because it still has a lot of good stuff in there. And I've got another one, I cut another video, and we're going to audit, audit in a day or two. Um, and this, I collect everything that Mary said in her modern apparitions about Vatican II. And so, uh, so she, she um, said the council was necessary, um, but she said eventually it will be implemented correctly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's where I'm on that. Yeah, I really, yeah, really appreciate that video just, just because of the distinction. It's a conversation, you know, I have with people quite often. And I always tell people, I can, I can read, even when I became a new Catholic back in 2006, I think I first picked up the Vatican documents of Vatican II. I still had a book over there, the original book I read. Um, and, you know, as a young Catholic, I was, I think I was able to read the documents in continuity with previous councils. I, there's a way to read them that is in line with, okay, I, I see what the church is saying. But um, and, and so I think you definitely have to make the distinction between the documents, the dogmatic constitutions in particular, with the things that came after, you know. And I'm like you, that's never been my experience in Ohio. I really didn't experience a lot of, you know, people playing with the liturgy until I moved, you know, to Illinois. And um, so, you know, yeah. I appreciate the video. I, I really do. And oh. Thank you very much for the encouragement. Because I was getting a lot of hate comments, but uh, but they yeah. weren't really rational. It was just like I had mocked their hero. I, I had crashed their hero. Yeah, and you're, and and that's emotional. Yeah, so. you're gonna get that. I think anytime I, I don't say the word cult in the pejorative sense, but I think anytime that you know there there's a cult or a following might be a nicer word, and people are faithful to the following. You know, I, I think you know, I think sometimes it's you know, I'm a big Cleveland Browns fan. You know, and I get irrational. You know, I dare you to say something about Brian Sipe or Bernie Kosar. You know, it's, it's, but it's just it's just one of the things. I get it, you know, but I appreciate I appreciate you you doing that. Um before we wrap up this 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 um our conversation here, um I like the the whole corona thing. There's I think Russia just said yesterday they have a new vaccine. They have for the coronavirus, and I think there are a lot of you know other people working on vaccines. I'm worried here in Illinois, knowing how the state is, that they're going to uh, require my youngest daughter, who's still in grade school, to have to take a vaccine before she goes back to school. Well, what's, what's 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 your thoughts on 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 vaccines? My um my prayer group happened to be um actually with Father Bernie and others. Um, for years, we have considered, I mean, before I was in the cloister, they were doing it, but they just thought, you know, the country is getting so destabilized, and at some point the economy could crash, and also Mary has talked about chastisements coming, so we want to be prepared for not being able to get your prescription drugs on time, or 
or for not being able to get groceries. And so there's what they call a prepper movement. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you just want to be prepared so you have some backup food, you have backup ways to, to take care of your health. And so that there's there's a lot of people who are deeply involved in natural natural alternatives. And so um, because of that, they do a lot of research and uh, you know, autism is just scary. It's off the charts right now. And a lot of people are finding that vaccines are very much related to that. And even President Trump has talked about it. And part of it is because they give you several vaccines at once. And so the body is really getting so hit so fast. You don't usually get three diseases all in the same day, do you? Um, so you don't have time. So it's kind of unnatural. And then, um, and then they throw a lot of mercury and different chemicals in there and what are they doing that for and it seems to us with a lot of research that there is an agenda in some of these pharmaceutical com communities um, that there's an agenda to reduce the population um, it really is out there if you've heard of the georgia guidestones and agenda 21 agenda 30 and so i don't get into a lot of this on my channel because i, I don't want to be shut down i'm going to do more on my my youtube my website will have more freedom but it isn't the main thing you know we're, we're trying to get mary's apparitions right but it is a very big concern for catholics morally to to um protect themselves from from evil because this is a very evil evil generation and so we have to be very very careful about yeah. what authorities we trust and who's behind it and, and your doctor may have no idea what, what's going on with the pharmaceutical company where he's getting that drug and it's very much the kingdom of lies because even when you do do internet research a lot of what you get is false information it's up there posted and it's hard to find facts so it is very you got to be very careful and um uh you know, I, you just got to be very careful. So, so none of us are getting, do you know, people have told me that um, not one person has gotten uh, the COVID, COVID thing unless they had a flu shot. Everybody who had it had a flu shot. So hmm. what, what is the connection there? Um, were you set up for that with the flu shots? I don't know. Um, there's just a lot of weirdness going on. Um, and whether it really is a pandemic, that's a whole other question in itself. But yeah, I would really hesitate. And and uh, uh, you know, should vaccines be there? okay? So so we've got all these naturopathics and uh, other ultra natural healers in our in our in our circle. The Theotokens is our prayer group, and so uh, we've got a naturopathic now who is working with the Kansas bishops and hopefully all the bishops. But she has a little kit, a homeopathic kit, which is like. Oh, like 40 test tubes and they're like in sugar and she has a chart and for like $200 this will vaccinate five children and the parent administers that and it spreads out over like two years and they have a chart when to give it and there's no extra additives and they're very very mild um, exposures to the to whatever it is so that your body can build up an immunity. So there are many alternative ways to vaccinate without somebody sticking a needle in you with, with who knows what's else in that serum there. So I, so, so yeah, I'm, so be careful. Yeah, definitely be careful.
Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. And I, yeah, thanks for saying that's not the, you know obviously not the principal work that you guys are doing. But I know it has like a, a good thing on your website, a really good resource that you have about vaccines. It's like wow, this is this is really good stuff. So I learned some things. So, Sister Anne, so thanks for coming on talking Catholic. And I'm so happy to have you here. So we're at the end of the show now. All right. Um, you told us so much. And I'm so excited about people hearing your vocation story, about Mary's um, apparitions, um, the things you've told us about um, the culture, religious life. I mean, you share so much with us. And I thank you for that again. But it's the end of the show. And I always ask my guests five random questions. Some and you don't give us a cheat sheet ahead of time. This is what I, I expected you would, but you didn't. Yeah. Gonna ask. Yeah, and so for a person that like you that's used to order and structure, kind of know what's gonna come next. I hope I can I hope I can trip you up. So we'll see. So <laughs> all right, so the first one is easy. Um what was the first apparition that you were deeply drawn to? Oh, that's easy. Bernadette. I was seven years old when I saw a song of Bernadette, and I was just totally blown away that Mary would pay attention to a little nobody with a broom. I mean, this is so incredible. So yeah. That just isn't that, isn't that great movie, the black and white one, right? Yeah, yeah. It's oh, nothing okay. like it. Yeah, that's great. And it, it 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 doesn't do justice to something. Some things were not right. Like the novice mistress was never that kind of a beast, but uh, you know, you had to you had to juice it up for the movie, so that's okay. Okay, but, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so second question. What was the last thing that you cooked that took longer than an hour to finish? Oh my goodness! Uh, I'm always people are always giving me venison because um, they know I love deer. So, uh, so um, sometimes it takes longer than I think to get the crock pot going and, and the garden vegetables. So, and then it ends up. But fortunately, I've learned to have my laptop in the kitchen so I can listen to YouTube's and get something else done when I have to cook. <laughs> All right. So venison. Um, if you could go back in time, somewhere within the last thousand years when would it be and who would you like to converse with or speak to oh so many saints so many saints um i would probably francis lieberman uh i, I love him so much he was so fantastic so he's not blessed or is he he's blessed francis lieberman he was he was a jew um, okay. And I, I was almost a Jew, so he's, he's got my heart. So, yeah, <laughs> he, he was so amazing. And, uh, and he was really persecuted in seminary because he hated Jews. And he, was, he just took it from so many levels that he was such a fantastic guy. So, uh, yeah, he's one of my heroes. I, gotta look, I have to look him up. I never, I never, I never heard of him. Interesting. His, his uh, birth name is Jacob, so he's really Jewish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jacob Lieberman. That's, yeah, yeah, he was son of the head rabbi, so he was something else. Wow, yeah, that's like Matthew Peter. Brian. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> All right. Um, what book are you reading now? Uh, I should say I'm reading the Divine Symphony. Right. Oh, thank you. That's three plugs. I'm gonna have to send you three some plugs. money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, it's a it's it. I haven't read, sat down read it because I, I have so many things to do. But this is the book I want to read through. It's been really good. Thank you. I'm not just saying that. I really am reading it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, number five, if God gave you a choice, 
this never happens, but if he gave you a choice of a spiritual gift and he gave you three options, by location, levitation, or the stigmata, which one would you choose and why? The stigmata, because you just want to be closer to Jesus and suffer what he suffered. But I wouldn't want it to be public. You know, there, there's such thing as invisible stigmata. Yeah. So, yeah, that one would just keep you an abiding sense of union with, with all that he suffered. I think that's closer to Lady of La Salette because she, she weeps the whole time of this apparition. And, uh, I mean, she's in heaven, so nobody can be happier than Mary. I mean, she's closer, close to the whole Trinity. And there's a joy, but there's also this abiding suffering because we see souls are being lost. And that is just, that just runs our hearts, you know. So, so there is that abiding sorrow that has to go on in a sincere Catholic. And the stigmata, I mean, and that's one reason um, we, wear, we wear penitential instruments sometimes so that we hurt a little so that we're reminded, you know, we don't get so caught up in, in whatever, we're, whatever restaurant we're eating or whatever we're, in, we're enjoying. We try to remember the abiding sorrow of, of Christ for souls so that we're always interceding, uh, uniting ourselves to that, that uh, prayer of intercession of Mary. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thank you, Sister Anne. I'd like to ask you five questions. Um, you know, when I'm on your podcast, maybe. <laughs> I, I really want to know your little eight-second clip. What what um, spire is that? Is that some Byzantine church that you're showing, or is that your parish church? Hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a it's a church in Russia. I forget the city. I thought that's, so. It's, it's an Orthodox. That's I thought on, so because you, you love the Eastern in a dead town. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Cool. Thank yeah. you so much for letting me talk to you. I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, thank you. And hopefully we'll talk again. All right. God bless you. Thank you. Fool me, we can't get fooled again. <laughs>